Rory was a uh, U.S. Army Ranger serving in Afghanistan. Uh, he um, became a conscientious, conscientious uh, observer, um, which I'm sure he could explain more, but uh, basically uh, uh, essentially uh, refusing to continue on uh, serving in the war uh, out of objection to uh, the horrors he was seeing the U.S. military uh, perpetrating on uh, the people of Afghanistan under the guise of, you know, hunting for uh, Al Qaeda and spreading democracy, what have you. He actually walked across the United States uh, for the Pat Tillman Foundation in 2008, 2009. Uh, if you don't know, Pat Tillman was an NFL player who left the NFL uh, to go serve in Afghanistan. Uh, he was uh, killed uh, in Afghanistan, uh, but there was a massive cover-up and lie uh, that he was killed by enemy fire when in reality he was killed by friendly fire and the cover-up went all the way up to President George W. Bush. So uh, Rory, who got to know uh, Pat and his brother uh, serving in Afghanistan, uh, walked across the country uh, for the Pat Tillman Foundation in 2008 and 2009 um, after his two deployments uh, from Afga in Afghanistan with the Second Army Ranger Battalion, he is the author of "Worth Fighting For: An Army Ranger's Journey Out of the Military and Across America," and co-author with uh, Craig Hodges of "Longshot: The Triumph Triumphs and Struggles of an MBA Freedom Fighter." He regularly speaks uh, at high schools and universities about his work uh, about his walk across the U.S. Um, I wanted to start, I mean, we could start obviously with the collective media freakout as well as, you know, obviously really uh, troubling um, scenes that we're seeing at the airport in Kabul and elsewhere. But I wanted to start first with you um, because you're like so many that after 9-11, um, you know, got caught up in, you know, the patriotic fervor at that point the uh, feeling, I guess, of um, feeling you had to do something. Can you just start out what what originally made you want to serve in Afghanistan? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, you know, it was 2001. I just graduated from Notre Dame, had a ton of student debt to pay back, um, was looking for a little bit of adventure. Uh, saw those planes hit the Twin Towers and said, you know, I want to do my part to prevent uh, another 9-11 from ever happening again. Um, I was a little suspicious uh, when the U.S. decided to enter Afghanistan as a full-blown military operation. Um, but it was a reality. And if someone was going to go, go over there and, and, and fight, I wanted to be part of it. Um, and, you know, do my part and preventing something from 9-11 from ever happening again. And, you know, hopefully spread a little freedom and democracy uh, while I was over there. Um, so, yeah, uh, before I knew it, I found myself in landing in Kabul, where you saw those uh, those airplanes taking off with the people attached to them today. Just horrifying images. Um, you know, I was expecting bullets to be whizzing by my head when I landed. Um, what I saw was kind of the opposite. It was very quiet. Um, what I didn't know is the Taliban had essentially surrendered um, a few months prior to me getting there um, in early 2002. Um, but that surrender wasn't good enough for politicians at home, you know, generals, uh, 
who wanted, you know, blood and revenge for 9-11, but I think more importantly to uh, maintain Cold War era military budgets, you know, trillion dollar year type figures. And I think Afghanistan and that perpetual war was the way to do it. And I wanted to I wanted to drill in on that for a second, because there was this narrative that the Taliban just won't give up, uh, that they're, uh, you know, a never ending threat and we have to remain there. But pretty much, I mean, not too long, uh, less than a year after the war launched, they had surrendered. But the Bush administration kept us there. I mean, everybody could have their opinions on why, but. Obviously, Afghanistan had uh, quite an opium uh, trade. Um, like you said, uh, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, was interested in Afghanistan dating back all the way to uh, the Muha, I'm going to botch it, the Mujahideen, or I think I pronounced it right, um, and the Cold War uh, fighting when um, bin Laden actually came up in Afghanistan when fighting the Russians. So can you kind of talk about Basically, this went on 20 years longer, but they had surrendered pretty much soon after the war started. Yeah, after that initial invasion, uh, when the Air Force went in and just bombed everything, um, special forces had some operations. You know, the Taliban said, OK, this is it. Um, you know, we have a few modest conditions um, and uh, it was it was rejected. Um, and, you know, this is. I mean, this is the nature of imperialism. I mean, there's always going to be that, you know, resource that needs to be controlled outside of U.S. markets, you know, maintaining spheres of influence in parts of the world where the U.S. feels like it could have more influence. And, you know, I, I, I mean, it's just, you know, I think you can get into the weeds on, on, on the whys and, you know, you know, what happened. But I think, you know, this habitual need um, to create new markets and, um kind of funnel money away from um, poor and working class people and into the hands of a very sm a small percentage of the population. I think that's that's really what it came down to. And um, yeah, I mean, when, and when I landed in the country, I mean, I felt like a bully. Um, you know, this was history's most powerful military. Um, you know, we had our night vision. We could do anything we wanted in, in, in these countrysides. Um, you know, we'd have rockets land in our camp and we'd call in an airstrike, you know, not into any specific one area, but that general vicinity over there. You know, and you, uh, estimates are as many as 80 to 85 percent of everyone who's been killed in Afghanistan have been innocent civilians. People who couldn't point to Manhattan on a map suddenly had a vested interest in knowing everything they could about the United States and um, its military. Um, and I think that explains a lot of the rise of uh, the Taliban is that so many innocent people were pissed off that the United States went in and started killing their family for, for reasons that they, they couldn't understand or fathom. And um, so, yeah. I wanted to also, you know, point out, um, I don't know uh, how much of this you learned later. But if the pretense for going into Afghanistan was taking out bin Laden, uh, the Taliban uh, or Al-Qaeda, well, the hijackers on 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia. Uh, and you mentioned profit. Well, we've had a longstanding financial uh, partnership with Saudi Arabia. But can you kind of talk about, I mean, 
yeah, bin Laden might have been in Afghanistan at one point, but the actual uh, 9-11, the execution of it and a lot of the uh, funding of it did not come from Afghanistan. Yeah, sure. It's one of the poorest countries on the planet. And it's even questionable whether bin Laden planned it from Afghanistan. Was it Pakistan or not? He spent most of his time, certainly after 9-11, in Pakistan, not Afghanistan. Um, Right. So, yeah, it was uh, you know, a botched mission from the very beginning. And there was a very little understanding of the culture. I don't think there was any kind of desire. We found ourselves you know, no more than pawns and village disputes most of the time. We'd go in, land in someone's front yard, throw a bag over their head, um, take them off to a place like Guantanamo or the like, and find out um, not long after that that guy didn't pay his landlord. And his landlord, you know, who also was looking for money in one of the poor, like I said, one of the poorest countries on the planet. Um, yeah, give me a few thousand dollars and I'll tell you a member of the Taliban. And he points to his uh, his tenant. <laughs> and, and that wasn't like a one off thing. This was a regular occurrence. Right. And um, yeah, I actually want to read uh, Jacobin did a great piece on you. And uh, I'm just going to read from it later while cooking dinner. For his family uh, at his house in a Chicago suburb, Fanning recounts a common ex- excursion for his unit. They'd land a helicopter in someone's front yard, enter a home to the sound of screaming children, and kidnap someone on what Fanning uh, later realized was usually uh, worthless intelligence, intelligence in quotation marks. I never put a bag over someone's head, but I watched the Navy SEAL do it, and I helped handcuff and carry the guy. You have no idea who the guy is. He's breathing heavily and you're watching the green bag, it's like a sandbag abrasive going in and out and wondering what's going on in his brain. You just stare at this guy as we fly off into the night and he's pants as if suffocating. He has no idea if he's going to be interrogated or killed or what, and then we go back to bed. And I think this kind of goes back, I mean, first off, that's just alarming, but I think this kind of goes back to what you were mentioning. I mean, it's not, PC to say this on CNN, but I don't know if that was happening to me and my family and my neighbors and my, my community, uh, I might want to fight the country doing it. I'm not defending terrorism, but the U S it seems to just make a good guys, bad guys paradigm without ever realizing like, why do these people want to fight us? Why do they hate us? Could it be that we're perpetually invading their countries? Yeah, I mean, I signed up to make, you know, the world a safer place. Um, I think an interesting t- statistic that really kind of gets to the heart of this, um, between 1980 and 2001, there were 200 suicide bombs around the world. Um, uh, between 2001 and 2012, there were over 2,500 suicide bombs around the world, 90% um, aimed at the U.S. or U.S. interests. But between 1980 and 2001, only 10% were aimed at the U.S. and U.S. interests. The world was a, became a much more dangerous place after, after the U.S. brazenly walked into Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, all these places, um, and, and killed innocent civilians. And um, so, yeah, I mean... You have to look at this in context, and that's certainly something Biden did not do in that speech today. He didn't he didn't go through all the innocent people that lost their lives because the United States wanted to maintain Cold War era military budgets for whatever the reason we're in these these countries. Um, 
the world is a much more dangerous place because of these endless wars. Um, so, yeah. And you got quite the, I mean, cold shoulder would be an understatement, but, you know, uh, punishment, uh, you know, being basically separated, uh, your family uh, basically um, kind of uh, separating themselves from you. Can you kind of talk about what happened in real time as you decided this and all the uh, consequences you, you dealt with? Yeah, I mean, I was basically rejected by people that, you know, there's kind of famous stories about the bonds you create in kind of a um, war environment <laughs> and to have everybody turn their back on you. Um, and I basically spent six months, you know, painting curbs, um, waiting, you know, baking cakes, washing dishes, absorbing the ridicule of the chain of command. Um, you know, there's two people that kind of stood by me during that time. It was Pat Tillman, and Kevin Tillman. They kind of respected my decision. They too, I think, uh, felt let down um, by what they were being asked to do overseas. And kind of, so they stood by me and they weren't afraid to sit there and have lunch with me when everybody else turned their back on me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was expecting to go to the jail or the big army to be a bullet stopper as, as it was referred to in the, the regiment. Um, and what happened was, um, I got called down to formation. I was thinking this was going to be the day after six months of, kind of punishment detail. It's going to jail, but I was told that Pat killed, Pat was killed, uh, in an enemy ambush in Afghanistan, uh, the night prior, um, which was, which was pretty overwhelming. Um, and so I was sent right back up to my room. The next day I called, was sent back down um, and was told to pack my bags um, and that I was going to uh, be sent out of the military, no jail, no big army, um, no even lecture, really. Uh, they just wanted me out um, because they were covering up the death of, of Pat, you know, which was an act of friendly fire. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I ended up leaving the military. Um, mm-hmm. And so. can you talk about, you know, this is not just a story of becoming, you know, a war resistor, which, by the way, I mean, I, I know my audience does, but I have a lot of admiration for what you did. Um, you kind of found socialism uh, at, also over the years, because, you know, I think Bernie Sanders, for example, I don't know if he did a great job of this, but was in his second campaign was really trying to connect that these wars and foreign policy it's all connected to what we don't have domestically and they're not some separate thing but our lack of health care uh crumbling education poverty uh is in large part a result of everything we're doing uh abroad so you know what was your path to uh basically this political awakening uh to move more towards uh socialism Sure. Um, well, I just, you know, started reading um, after I got, I think I read Stephen Kinder, uh, Kinzer's Overthrow, um, you know, read some Howard Zinn, um, met uh, people who worked at Haymarket Books, um, you know, here in Chicago, started reading some of that, that stuff. And, you know, after I left the military, you know, I didn't necessarily have these words at the time, but, you know, I wanted nothing to do with exploiting or oppressing anybody ever again. And um, I think when you break down socialism, I think it's an attempt to fight exploitation and oppression wherever it rears its head, Um, I think. And so that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, you have a lot of 
you know, red baiting and propaganda of what socialism is. I thought it was Stalinism my whole life or even, you know, Maoism or, you know, but it, to me, it was just a really simple concept. Anytime I saw someone stealing from somebody <laughs> or oppressing somebody I, or, you know, killing somebody, um, you know, for all the wrong reasons. Um, I don't you know if there's ever a good reason for that stuff, but uh, I wanted to do my part in, in, in fighting it. And I think that's um, how I came to, to socialism. And, uh, uh, and there's, there's quite a few people out there. There's also quite a few uh, veterans who feel the same way and push back against U.S. imperialism and also want to fight exploitation and oppression every time, everywhere it rears its head. Um, and so I was able to link up with these people and veterans for peace and, uh, Iraq veterans against the war, uh, about face now. And, uh, now I work for Haymarket books and get to work with all these amazing authors and, uh, kind of help, um, give people a vocabulary to understand, um, you know, what they're, de- what they're going through in terms of exploitation mm-hmm. and oppression. We went to Afghanistan almost 20 years ago with clear goals. Get those who attacked us on September 11, 2001, and make sure Al-Qaeda could not use Afghanistan as a base from which to attack us again. We did that. We severely degraded Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. We never gave up the hunt for Osama bin Laden, and we got him. That was a decade ago. Our mission in Afghanistan was never supposed to have been nation-building. We've developed counterterrorism over the horizon capability that will allow us to keep our eyes firmly fixed on the direct threats to the United States in the region and act quickly and decisively if needed. When I came into office, I inherited a deal that President Trump negotiated with the Taliban. Under his agreement, U.S. forces would be out of Afghanistan by May 1, 2021 just a little over three months after I took office. There would have been no ceasefire after May 1. There was no agreement protecting our forces after May 1. There was no status quo of stability without American casualties after May 1. There was only a cold reality of either following through on the agreement to withdraw our forces or escalating the conflict and sending thousands more American troops back into combat in Afghanistan, lurching into the third decade of conflict. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. That's why we're still there. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. We spent over a trillion dollars. We trained and equipped an Afghan military force of some 300 thousand strong, incredibly well-equipped. We gave them every chance to determine their own future. We could not provide them was the will to fight for that future. It is wrong to order American troops to step up when Afghanistan's own 
armed forces would not. The political leaders of Afghanistan were unable to come together for the good of their people, unable to negotiate for the future of their country when the chips were down. They would never have done so while U.S. troops remained in Afghanistan, bearing the brunt of the fighting for them. This is not in our national security interest. It is not what the American people want. It is not what our troops, who have sacrificed so much over the past two decades, deserve. I made a commitment to the American people when I ran for president that I would bring America's military involvement in Afghanistan to an end. While it's been hard and messy, and yes, far from perfect, I've honored that commitment. More importantly, I made a commitment to the brave men and women who serve this nation that I wasn't going to ask them to continue to risk their lives in a military action that should have ended long ago. So uh, what were your initial reactions to what he said, which was frankly kind of a mix of throwing previous presidents under the bus, including Obama? He didn't mention him by name, but did mention he was against the surge uh, under Obama uh, and basically saying doesn't matter if we got out now, five years ago, 10 years from now, uh, what you're seeing now w- would have happened regardless. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's 2021 and he's saying these things, you know, I've, he was I, I'm sure people would have made space for him and the anti-war marches, and the, you know, 2003, you know, 2002, 2001. Um, there was and any number of you know events that happened where people were pushing back and challenging U.S. imperialism for the last 20 years, the words feel a little bit empty. Um, I also feel like he was put in this situation, um, so it's hard to know how authentic um, those comments were. You know, after Trump withdrew uh, of the vast majority of the troops, I do think there was going to be a potential for some more bloodshed on the part of the U.S. Um, in escalating conflict. Um, over the next couple of months um, based on the decisions that the Trump administration kind of made. And I think they kind of boxed, you know, Biden in, in a lot of ways. Um, But, you know, I don't think there was nearly enough focus on the responsibility that the United States bears for the amount of chaos um, and, and horror that is happening in Afghanistan right now. There wasn't nearly enough talk about uh, the refugee crisis that is going to ensue over the next couple of months and years as a result. During a, pan- during a raging pandemic, by the way. Exactly. So, I mean, I was, you know, obviously some of the things that he said were true, but the person saying it wasn't very inspiring. Um, and, uh you know, I think the U.S. is needs to do way more soul searching. Like, I guess you need a soul to do soul searching. But I think there has to be um, a real accounting of the amount of money that has been wasted um, and lives lost, the innocence lives lost, and then the, the fallout. Um, and that certainly wasn't covered um, the way it should have been in that speech. And also a lot of a lot of blame for, you know, this is the Afghans fault. You know, this is the Afghan people for for running, you know, with totally taking the stuff out of context and, you know, identifying, you know, the reality of, of, you know, what Afghan people were faced with in terms of the Taliban uh, uh, 
Taliban's rise over the last 10 years. I want to get uh, from you. I credited him, but I also, you know, I kind of have a brain. I don't know. Every time they say we're leaving these places, all of a sudden, years later, you find out, oh, no, there's still like four or five thousand troops there for whatever bullshit they come up with, you know, uh, advising, uh, you know, special advisors, this and that. I mean, I think we've left Iraq like three times now uh, when, you know, the media covered uh, as as if uh, I, I remember Rachel Maddow covering the troops leaving Iraq uh, over well over a decade ago. But then recently, you know, more, Trump sent Trump removed, I think, a couple thousand from there. So, I mean, we can't predict the future, but is it you know, do we really think he's removing all troops and all U.S. investments from Afghanistan? Well, they're sending 6,000 troops in there right now uh, to, I guess, right. facilitate the withdrawal. So they took them out and now they're sending them back. Um, and, yeah, who knows um, what has I, I, I have zero faith. I mean, we have close to 800 military bases around the world. Um, uh, so the U.S. Isn't, isn't leaving anything. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how things work out in the next couple of months. But I don't have a ton of faith in, you know, the United States doing the right thing um, mm -hmm. in any capacity. And I wanted to show you if your stomach could take it. Um, some of the media freak out uh, over the last 24 hours. And I think a lot of media are kind of pretending they're they're pissed off because of the way we withdrew. When in reality, they don't want us to withdraw. Uh, they haven't covered it in 20 years, but if, you know, they, for, for corporate reasons, uh, and other reasons. Uh, and what's so interesting, Mika, unless I missed it, I didn't notice people voting in 2020 based on Afghanistan and where people, when people were going into the streets protesting, it was about police and George Floyd, not about the American involvement in, in Afghanistan. So I didn't see the pressure to come out. From everybody that you were talking, all the insiders, who in the White House was for this? Who in the White House thought this was an effective uh, geopolitical move on the world stage? The person who was most for it, Mika, was President Biden and his top aides who thought that this was something that was a long-held belief of the president's, it was just covered, that he thought that the Americans' mission in Afghanistan should be wound down, that they could not have a permanent presence there. And yes, there was expectations that the Taliban would, of course, advance as soon as U.S. troops started to leave. But U.S. officials that I've talked to and working the phones all weekend with senior aides reported uh, on the Associated Press today uh, were stunned by the speed of this, how quickly the Afghan government collapsed. That that. That, that they fear that now, with the Taliban moving back into control, there is a greater possibility that Afghanistan could be used as a launching pad again for terror attacks against the West, against the United States. And we don't need to, uh, over, it can't be overstated how disturbing that is, particularly since we're just weeks away from the 20th anniversary of September 11th terror attacks. Um, the, the Taliban have used negotiations to, as a ruse, as a smokescreen. Um, we should never trust the Taliban when they're talking about peace. They do want peace. It's not our version of peace. It's the Taliban's version of peace. What is the national security concern for the U.S. right now when we see the expediency by which the Taliban has moved through that country? 25 of their pro uh, provincial capitals uh, are now in the hands of Taliban, and it's 25 out of just 34. 
Yeah, that's right, Christy. And I think the, the big national security implication here is how do we really organize our armed forces to deal with threats like al-Qaeda, like ISIS, like the Taliban, uh, when you are called on to go into a place like Afghanistan. They can really do a lot of stuff when we're not there watching them, at least not watching them in the way that we need to watch them with assets on the ground in an area that can actually collect information and analyze that information. So it's a failure of collection, it's a failure of analysis, and it's a failure of, of putting all of this together and uh, making meaningful uh, intelligence available to our policymakers and leaders. Bill Rochion, uh, Colonel Cedric Layton, you know, your expertise is, is something that we, we certainly value here. Taliban has now entered Kabul, home to six million Afghan people. Your reaction? Well, I think the first thing is, why is Joe Biden on vacation? Uh, I, I don't think he's taken one question from the press this entire weekend. Uh, so this is, this is a frightening situation. It's an embarrassing situation for the United States. But uh, I think, frankly, it's not surprising. I mean, it, the, the, the framing that the U.S. is this benevolent force, um, you know, is you know, a bit of manufacturing consent. You know, I, I think, you know, one of the Chelsea Manning's, you know, great revelations was how vetted the U.S. Uh, media was in terms of covering uh, Iraq. It, that, was, that was her revelation, but there was, I think, seven reporters allowed inside Iraq um, to be embedded and to cover some of this stuff. Um, all of, you know, the death and destruction and the horrors, the innocent people has been completely sanitized and removed from people's daily vision. Um, you know, unlike in Vietnam where the people saw it in front of them on a regular basis. And, you know, there's a, a mounting kind of outrage for what the U S was doing over there. Um, so I think people would have a uh, little less of, uh, you know, positive take on U.S. involvement in these countries um, if they saw the horrors that the media is kind of like blocking out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I really don't know what to say about all that. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's propaganda for the U.S. state, um, and it's telling half-truths, I think. And right. the U.S. had no business in Afghanistan in the first place, and that... Uh, certainly wasn't conveyed in any of the clips you just ran. Right. Uh, two more questions. So, you know, obviously it's not directly related, but I, I think it's connected. Um, you know, Biden, unlike his uh, Obama, um, decided to go after Julian Assange, who's been uh, basically a political prisoner for a decade. Um, now uh, the appeals process is going on, the U.S. government appealing uh, a U.K., judge decision not to extradite him. This could go on for years, frankly. Um, and the same media that you just correctly said is issuing propaganda uh, is, you know, silence, silence of the lambs on this, uh, even though uh, essentially Obama and his Department of Justice decided not to prosecute Assange, citing the New York Times problem, because what Assange did is exactly what the New York Times does. In fact, the New York Times worked with Assange to release a lot of the uh, Iraq war logs and other things um, as somebody who has moved, you know, decidedly to the left uh, since being in Afghanistan. Um, what's the importance of what is going on with Julian Assange now? Because to me, it's uh, definitely the top journalistic issue out there. Uh, and I also believe uh, if they get away with what they do doing to Julian Assange, it's really, really bad 
uh, for the future of whistleblowing. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I guess it's not necessarily what's reported, it's what's not reported. And I think, you know, some of the revelations that Julian Assange and Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden, you know, the size and scale of the surveillance industry, um, you know, all that stuff is uh, kind of goes against the mainstream narrative that the U.S. is a force for good around the world and doesn't do things to uh, for the sole purpose of, uh, of power and profit. Um, so any any opportunities to kind of like expose, you know, the manipulative media behavior, particularly around subjects like this, I think is an important thing. And I think uh, we need whistleblowers and um, people who are going to push back uh, against the, the current, the huge, you know, mainstream media. So, um, yeah, and Democrats and Republicans alike are equally guilty of this, defending the empire at all costs. Yeah. And my last question, um, you know, I think Biden ultimately, I think, is going to it's going to be looked at favorably um, by the majority of Americans that were leaving Afghanistan. But a false sense will creep in that we're not in any active wars anymore and that yeah. we, we are disengaging um, with you know, trying to police, you know, the rest of the world and spread democracy. But I don't know. By my count, we're still, whether it be bombing, sanctioning uh, at least uh, seven to ten countries uh, and killing people as a result. I mean, you look at the, the cold, the re- Cold War reenactment over the last five years with Russiagate and all those things. You look at the crippling sanctions in Russia, Iran, Venezuela. Um, and that, again, is framed uh very deceptively uh, by media. So as a a veteran who obviously keeps up on these things, uh, can you describe, it's not just Afghanistan we're involved with. No, I mean, Nick Turst does some great reporting for The Intercept. I mean, the U.S. has conducted military operations in 48 African countries since 2011 alone. Um, We're we're all over the the planet. You know, like I've said multiple times, I mean, you're, you're doing something with your 700 military bases around the world. You know, something that would be completely unacceptable to us to have a military base in Montana. You know, if you were like Japan or North Korea or any other any country that you can imagine, you, w- you would never allow something like that. Um, but it's, it's, I guess, fine for the United States to have its you know, tentacles everywhere. Um, and yeah, and. You know, if if it, if it was the case that we were completely pulling pulling out our troops, you know, the military budget should plummet. Uh, for Afghanistan, you know, was the only only war that we were fighting. But something tells me that the military budget will stay the same, if not increase. So, um, and all that money is being rerouted from infrastructure, education, health health care, you know, the important things. Um, in order to maintain these follies around the world. And so a small percentage of the population can benefit at the expense of all of us. Right. Absolutely. And where can uh, people learn more about what, what you're doing? Um, any, anything you want to promote? Um, and again, you know, thank you. People should really read the Jacobin story. Um, I'll put it in the uh, description of the video. Uh, they really profiled you and everything you went through there and your decision to leave. Is there anything, uh, anywhere people could find you and what you're doing now? 
Yeah, if you wanted to check out my book, Worth Fighting For, you can pick it up at haymarketbooks.org or bookshop.org. Um, certainly do that. You can follow me on Twitter at rtfanning. Um, and then, you know, if you want to read some of my articles, I've read a bunch of counter-recruitment articles for The Nation and The Guardian, and uh, you can feel free to just type my name into the search engine. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for having me on, Jordan. I really appreciate chatting with you, and thanks for asking me all the great questions. Yeah, the police or the police, but like, isn't the mayor a Democrat? Isn't the governor's upper recall a Democrat? Like, can't, they're supposedly want people to be vaccinated, you know, uh, do not want, you know, people stabbing each other in the street. I mean, the LAPD would act if they were ordered to act. What is the mayor of Los Angeles, not known as a Republican haven? Uh, do, do they respond to these things? Do they do anything? No. No, and in fact, there's a second, let's talk about two things here. Uh, there's a second file there, Colin, called Sergeant Helper. I want to I want to give you guys an example of, of some of the uh, brass that is in the LAPD and what they're doing. Because this makes really clear that they absolutely are bringing their biases to the skirmish line. Uh, so no, it's, it's not all LAPD officers for those that are asking, but many that, in, that are in charge are absolutely Trump supporters, absolutely hate Antifa. They say it all the time. And okay, so you're looking at screenshots now from an LAPD officer, Sergeant, Sergeant Helper is his name. He's um, downtown all the time I see him. And I often see him assisting those on, uh, on the right, you know, the Proud Boys, et cetera. So, you know, he is now in trouble because obviously he's violated LAPD protocol. They're not supposed to be, you know, posting this kind of kinds of things. But the bridge too far was uh, one of the Getty photographer photographers, photojournalists took a DMCA notice on. A, a, he had stolen some photos and uh, put them on his social media, and obviously was, you know, Antifa's this, that, or the other, blah blah blah, bullshit kind of stuff. So this photographer filed a DMCA takedown notice, and what does Sergeant Helper do? He publicly posts that from his uh, from his city email address. It was sent to. He posted on his social media, so he's he's going to probably not get in trouble for it, but he's in trouble for it. If you if you get my drip, they won't do anything. They'll cover their asses, but but there is a uh, current pending look into that situation. But you can scroll through and you see him talking about Proud Boys, um, Colin. There's like a bunch of photos in if you want to show some of them. But this is his uh, account. It's now locked down in private. I have uh, a journalist friend of mine has a fake account on Instagram, so. She's actually able to still see his post because he accepted her friend request. <laughs> mm -hmm. So here you see him posting like here's this post about the Proud Boys, right? Yeah. So you can clearly see where this guy lies. Um, OK, there's a second one, uh, Stabile, who is also in the same division downtown. When uh, Berlindo Neba was assaulted in downtown on January 6th here, and we have that video. People can go back and look at it. But basically, uh, a group of Trump supporters cornered her. They bear maced her. They ripped off her weave and they were holding up her weave. Uh, and one of them screamed, this is the first scalping of the new civil war. This is clearly, as far as I'm concerned, a hate crime, open and shut case. When she went to go uh, report it to Stabile, Stabile's response to her was that he would make a citizen's arrest. And my response to, I was standing there filming this, I said, Stabile, you only do that if you don't have probable cause. How is there not probable cause? Here's the entire hate crime film for you, delivered. 
nothing. Uh, I did follow up with the DA's office on that particular situation. <clears throat> and the DA basically told me the LAPD had not brought a case to them. So how, how is that happening, right? These are clear-cut cases. I think the, that Rocky Romano be, being hit on the back of the head with the lead pipe is another one. They haven't brought a case on that. Here it is, signed, sealed, and delivered. Here is the crime fully shot from start to finish. Here is the guy admitting that he did it, admitting that he did it. His name is Aaron Simmons. Here are all of the folks that he was with. Not a single arrest, arrest has been made. I how think, is this possible? I think also... Um, I mean, at the end of the day, there was an LAPD officer basically shot a woman in the face, point blank range, yeah. with rubber bullets. Yeah. I don't think that guy's fired. I don't think nope. he's on leave. No, I know I, there I, might be some lawsuits going on, but like, there is. It, it's unbelievable that you could have all this stuff on footage, which would be a journalist's job and great work on this and all of it. I mean, amazing work. But it seems like they just, I guess because the local media kind of does 20 seconds on it, but doesn't really raise a stink about it, that that enables them to keep kind of not only looking the other way, but enabling these yeah. cultists, really. It absolutely does enable them because the, the more they get away with these crimes, the more that nothing happens to them when they behave this way, the more bold they become. So, you know, this last situation, we had people stabbing each other, right? So, you know, we saw there was one stabbing. This one, there was multiple stabbings. I, I, I am fully of the belief that somebody at some point is going to pull out a gun and shoot somebody. Like that's because each, each cycle, the violence gets increased, right? It gets increased on the right. So the left is responding now. You know, now everybody's out there like carrying, you know, weapons for defense because they're afraid if they go. So I don't know how that de-escalates or stop. I mean, does it mean that people stop protesting because they're afraid for their lives? Well, isn't that what they want? That's what the fascists, the right wingers, the, you know, the Trump side want, right? They want it. They want to control the conversation. They don't want right. anybody, you know, standing up to them. So that's, right. I think the, the real point of that. Right. And it's just absolutely absurd to me that these guys in the LAPD do nothing about it. And I know that there are officers that would agree with what we're saying, but they're not speaking out against these guys or they're turning a blind eye. I've seen them do it, right? I've seen some of them give me a look like, you know, knowing I have a point, but they won't say anything. So that just sort of points to this argument that it's the system. You know, when when activists make that, um, that chant, there's no good cops in a bad system, this is the root of what they're getting at, right? Right. Well, that to me- That thin blue line, you know? Right. To me, and trigger warning, if-, if you know, anti-vaxxers are watching. And no, I'm not going to call it something else. You're anti-vaxxers. That's just what it is. Because uh, people were criticizing me on Twitter for labeling them that. Um, no, but that's what they are. They, they, they right. are absolutely anti-vaccine. Let me clarify that for everybody right now. These guys absolutely 100% are. They were spewing every QAnon theory that you could imagine the, about metals, about the emergency broadcast system, all kinds of stuff like this. Um, right. The thing that really angers me deeply the most is some of them are trying to make this argument about this being akin to Nazi Germany. I'm sorry, get the fuck out of here with that nonsense. You're gonna compare a genocide, like an actual genocide to a public health crisis. All people are asking you to do is think about the fact that your decision affects everybody around you. It's not just your decision. This isn't tyranny. This is a public health crisis. Everything all of us do affects everybody else in it. So why, 
I mean, if you can't even put a mask on, seriously, that's genocide to you, then get out of here. That's ridiculous. Well, Wear a me, mask. To me, none of us are psychologists, but I've had the benefit of seeing this evolve from Trump 2016 all the way to now. And what has evolved is simply the facts don't matter. So, for example, yeah. a lot of these – and by the way, I want to separate because I do genuinely understand there are some parts of the country – particularly black communities who are rightfully oh yes um, yes yes rightfully hesitant i mean they've yeah. been experimented on uh, 100% so. i agree with you there let me right. disclose that i 100% agree with you there i don't think yeah. that's the same thing about what what we're talking about here though. right so if they you know they say oh it's not fda approved if it got fda approved tomorrow they'd still be out there they'd yeah, say yeah this group would a, be yeah it's a conspiracy uh they were forced to do this by you know whomever the deep state yada 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 and it's still not safe so to me and I even know people in my life. This doesn't seem to me to be genuinely and literally about vaccine skepticism. Yeah, I agree it with you. It seems to me to be about kind of this, yes, Trumpism and just whatever the cult leader says. Uh, even though Trump got, you know, to his credit, the vaccine is because of Trump and his administration uh, getting it out quickly. So you would think right. they would trust it. But to me, this is about this is new world order thinking, you know, yeah, this is, um, you know, because you've basically been manipulated and hoodwinked by a phony populist who really is a fascist um, and the apparatus around him, Newsmax, OANN, Fox News, uh, right wing radio, uh, right wing politicians. Um, it doesn't particularly it's not so much about the vaccine because the facts are. This vaccine was not developed in a year. I mean, that's just not true. Right. That's just I not mean, true. The research and trials have been going on for over a decade. So you could not create this in one year. Secondly, you know, I know people that are anti-vaccine because it's an abridgment of their freedom, yet are against uh, assault rifles, semi-automatic rifles, or, you know, want gun control because their mentality is your, your freedom your right to a gun does not supersede my right to live or my children's rights. Yeah, there you, to that's live. a big one. Yeah. And I know people in my life that mm -hmm. feel that way, but mm -hmm. with the vaccine, freedom.